these tough questions, we've been trying to imagine ourselves in the midst of a conversation with a friend, a neighbor, or a coworker who is skeptical of the Christian faith. Now, at this point, the conversation is probably starting to wind down. If you're sitting at a coffee shop by now, the coffee has probably started to get cold. And if you're on your patio, the sun has started to go down. If you're at the library, the janitors have started the vacuums. And you've already gone back and forth on some pretty big questions so far of the Christian faith. You've talked about the exclusivity of Christianity, the credibility of the Bible, the relationship between science and faith, and even that heart-wrenching question of hell and God's judgment. But even now, there may still be one question left in this conversation. That skeptical person might look at you at this point and say, okay, if God is real, what is the deal with all the violence, the injustice, the oppression, and what seems to be senseless evil in the world? If you want to sum up the question, you could say, if God is good, And if God is powerful, why is there so much suffering? If God is good and God is powerful, why is there so much suffering in the world around us? Because if God is really as powerful as Christians claim, then why doesn't he just put an end to all that stuff? And if God's really good and he could put an end to that stuff, but he doesn't, who are we to say that he's good? If he was good, he would put it into an end. Now, this question can't be neatly categorized in the subjects of theology or history or science or ethics, because this question is about experience. This question isn't asked just out of intellectual curiosity or ethical debate. This question comes from feelings of pain and discouragement, confusion and frustration. Recently, a 10-year-old boy in Indianapolis was shot and killed in a freak drive-by shooting. Why? Now, obviously, some people would say, well, someone pulled the trigger. They were in a neighborhood that's been riddled with crime in recent years, and these things are just going to happen. It's an unfortunate fact of life. But why? Because if God is really good and God is really powerful, couldn't he have redirected the bullet to hit somewhere else? Couldn't the bullet have hit a tree or a mailbox? If God's good and God's powerful, why did that innocent 10-year-old boy have to die? We read about factory explosions in China where 75 people die because of carelessness. Couldn't God have somehow limited the damage? Contained the explosion? Maybe let it happen at a time when fewer people were in the factory? Why did it have to happen that way? We read about cases of children being killed by drunk drivers. Couldn't God have put the car that the child was in somewhere else? Couldn't he have just redirected the drunk driver to go into a field or maybe go into a shallow ditch where no one would get hurt? Why did a child have to die? Of all the questions that we've asked, if we're really honest... This one may offer the least satisfactory answers for the skeptical person, especially if in that very moment they're the ones taking the brunt 
of what seems to be completely and utterly senseless suffering. Because in someone's moment of suffering, even if we do give an answer that is fair and balanced and honest, doctrinally sound, logically coherent, even if we give the best answer we can possibly come up with, that doesn't just magically take the pain away. A good answer to a tough question like this won't bring back a 10-year-old boy who died. And while the Christian faith may not be able to offer easy, clear-cut, silver bullet type of answers for questions like this, here's what the Christian faith can offer. The Christian faith can offer people the ability to see their suffering and see their pain and see their hardship through a new lens. The Christian faith helps us to see pain and suffering that seems senseless from a new perspective. It doesn't mean the pain and the suffering automatically go away. They certainly don't. But perhaps our faith can help us see them in a new light. So with that, open your Bibles to Romans 8. If you're using one of our chair Bibles, this will be located on page 808. And if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take one home with you today as they sit out on the welcome desk. But before we read anything in Scripture about this question, let's pray and then we'll get started. Father, we've dealt with tough questions that plague all of us from time to time, questions that we wrestle with and go back and forth on, and and maybe our beliefs change over time. But God, this is maybe the toughest one of all, because all of us have felt pain, all of us have felt suffering, all of us have felt hardship at some level, and there's no use in comparing our pain or our suffering or our hardship, because we only know what we know. And pain hurts. And suffering is brutal. And God, there may be people right now in this room who are just coming out of a time of suffering and experiencing some level of relief. There may be people who are ready to enter into it and they don't even know it yet. Or there may be people who are right in the thick of things. And God, whatever category we find ourselves in, I pray that we would look to you for comfort, for guidance, for consolation, And for strength in those moments. And I pray that we would look to your word. And that your word would inform us. Of how we might view the suffering. Not only that we experience. But the suffering that people all over our world. Deal with day in and day out. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for your faithfulness and your stability. When everything else around us is chaotic. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, for what it's worth, the Bible does not shy away from the question that we're asking this morning. In fact, some of the Bible's most well-known figures have asked the same question that we ask today. Consider Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph is a man who loves God. He tries to do everything right. And yet, because of rivalry with his brothers, he finds himself under immense suffering. Sold into slavery. At one point, he finds himself in prison, falsely accused of rape. And as Joseph is sitting in that jail, he interprets the dream of Pharaoh's cupbearer. Pharaoh's cupbearer got into some trouble himself. And so Joseph tells the cupbearer that soon he's going to be released. But when you get released, when you get out of here, why don't you put a good word in for me with Pharaoh? 
Because I'm sitting in here. I've been in here for too long. I'm innocent of this crime. Maybe you could convince Pharaoh to get me out of jail. The cupbearer says, yeah, sure. Okay, whatever. But then look what happens. Genesis 40, verse 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Why? Why does Joseph have to continue suffering? Why would God allow a righteous man like Joseph continue in this injustice, continue in this pain, all because the chief cupbearer has a bad memory? Why would God allow that to happen? Why wouldn't God just send an angel to break open the bars of the prison and let Joseph go if Joseph was good and righteous and innocent? Why does he have to keep toiling away in that jail cell? And I'm sure as Joseph toiled, he probably asked the same question that we're asking right now. If God is good and God is powerful, why am I suffering? Why am I here? Why am I in jail? I didn't do anything wrong. I don't deserve this. Another person to consider, like Joseph, is Job. Job, too, is a good man. Job is the best man around. Job loves God. He tries to do everything right, and yet Job suffers immensely. Now, the book of Job tells us the things happening behind the scene that caused this all to occur with Job, but Job didn't know those things. Job couldn't see that stuff. So you can understand why Job might wrestle with this question himself. Look at what Job writes in Job 21, verse 7. Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Verse 13, they spend their days in prosperity, and in peace they go down to Sheol. Job wants to know, why do the righteous suffer, and why do the wicked prosper? Why do the wicked have offspring and wealth and success and influence and they die in peace? Meanwhile, me, a righteous man, I've lost all that stuff. And it certainly looks like I'm going to die in pain and agony. Job wants to know, if God is good and God is powerful, why is there so much suffering? Consider David. Like Joseph and like Job, David was a man after God's own heart. David was not perfect by any stretch, but David certainly loved God. And yet for all the good times in David's life, and there were many, there were just as many times of suffering and pain. David had to flee from the king on the throne before he took the throne. David had to flee from his own son. When his son took over, treachery, mutiny, betrayal, things weren't always easy for David. Thus, you can understand why he would write in Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? David's asking the same question. If God is good and God is powerful, why is there so much suffering? By now, it should be clear that the Bible does not shy away 
from the question that we're talking about. The Bible does not mince any words about it. Why do bad things happen to good people? And why do good things happen to bad people? Is the question we often ask. Now, first things first, if we really think about it, what do we mean by good and bad? What do we mean by righteous and wicked? Because last week when we talked about hell and we talked about God's judgment, we discussed how many people in our world don't like the idea of a God who judges, don't like the idea of a God who punishes bad people or rewards good people. And yet now we're complaining about the righteous suffering and the wicked prospering. Well, to be honest, that breakdown implies that maybe we as humans do believe in a God of judgment more than we like to admit. Maybe we're saying deep down inside somewhere that, okay, if God is real, if there is in fact a God, then he should be a God of justice. He should be a God who rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked. What other kind of God could there be who would be worthy of our worship in the first place? You see, this question kind of exposes that the problem is not that we don't want a God who judges. We do. The problem is that we often want a God who judges on our terms. We want a God who rewards the people that we think should be rewarded and punishes the people that we think should be punished. And yet often, God's criteria don't match up with our criteria. But on top of that, let's just be honest about something else. Who do we think we are that we don't deserve to suffer? What makes us think that we should be exempt from suffering? After all, think about it. Every human who has ever walked this earth has suffered in some shape, form, or fashion. Every single one of them. And regardless of how many changes occur through human progress or technological advancement, that stays the same. Humans suffer. It's a fact of life. What makes us think that we're any different? That we should be exempt from suffering? Now, we as Christians certainly shouldn't believe that our faith somehow makes us exempt from suffering. I mean, throughout the history of the church, the most faithful followers of Jesus are often those who suffer the most and suffer the most intensely. We got a stark reminder of that this past week at the community college in Oregon, where a man lines up people, points a gun at their head and says, what do you believe? And the people who were Christians were shot in the head. That is a stark reminder that our faith does not exempt us from suffering. Often the Christian faith throws us right in to suffering. We shouldn't be exempt from it. And finally, if we're really honest, who are we to say that suffering has no value? Who are we to say that? For us to sit back and say that this suffering has value, but that suffering doesn't, that would imply that we're all-knowing. And yet, none of us are. When you think about it, all of us can probably look at moments of immense suffering and immense pain in our lives that seem senseless in the moment, seem senseless at the time, and yet years later, we discover that maybe that pain, maybe that suffering did have value after all. Maybe that momentary suffering 
did have a good purpose that we simply couldn't see at the moment. We talked about Joseph. Joseph experiences that. In Genesis chapter 50, we read there, verses 19 and 20. Excuse me. Genesis 50, verses 19 and 20. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph was concerned because dad died, and the brothers thought that Joseph was going to get revenge on them. The brothers thought that Joseph was going to really let them have it for all the wrong they did to him before. And yet Joseph makes it clear. What I thought was senseless suffering as I sat in that jail cell. What I thought was completely pointless and had no value whatsoever as I rotted down there and the chief cupbearer forgot about me. Years later, I now know that God was using that pain and God was using that suffering and God was behind the scenes working through that hardship, accomplishing good and valuable purposes that I couldn't see. Joseph says, for am I in the place of God? Who am I to punish you for the suffering you put me through? Who am I to claim that my suffering had no point? Because clearly it did have a point. The Bible does not shy away from this question. We as humans do have the idea that if God is real, then he should be just. And then on top of that, no one should expect to be exempt from suffering. It is a fact of life. And we must always be honest enough to admit that we can't see the good that sometimes results from suffering. We're not all-knowing. And maybe our pain has more value than we sometimes like to admit. But that still leaves the question. How should we as followers of Jesus deal with the problem of suffering? We talked earlier about that new lens or that new perspective through which we can see our suffering, through which we can see our pain. Well, how can our faith, how can Christianity bring us any consolation? in the midst of pain, in the midst of darkness? Well, a few suggestions. Number one, the Christian faith enables us to be honest about our suffering. We can be honest about our suffering. Psalm 88 is a passage that shows brutal honesty about suffering and pain and heartache Questions of the goodness of God, questions of the power of God, questions even of the presence of God. That's Psalm 88. That's in the Bible where we see brutal honesty in the midst of suffering. You see, God's people are not called to put on masks and hide our suffering and pretend everything's okay. We're not called to do that. It's not as though admitting our doubts and admitting our fears and admitting our weaknesses in the midst of hardship somehow makes us less spiritual. It doesn't. That's not how it works. Consider the example of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called A Grief Observed immediately following his wife's death due to cancer. And Lewis was a devoted Christian, a godly man. And yet in that book, he did not hesitate to make clear his doubts and even his frustrations with God. 
a few passages he writes. What chokes every prayer and every hope is the memory of all the prayers she and I offered and all the false hopes we had. Not hopes raised merely by our own wishful thinking, hopes encouraged, even forced upon us by false diagnoses, by x-ray photographs, by strange remissions, by one temporary recovery that might have ranked as a miracle. Step by step, we were led up the garden path. Time after time, when God seemed most gracious, he was really preparing the next torture. Brutal honesty in a passage like that. He also writes, what do people mean when they say, I'm not afraid of God because I know he is good? Have they never been to a dentist? An even more honest passage. Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is in vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence becomes. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once, and that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help? In time of trouble. In that moment, C.S. Lewis sounds a whole lot like David. How long, Lord, will you forget me? How long, Lord, will you be silent? How long, Lord, will you turn your face away from me? But don't just consider C.S. Lewis, consider Paul. As Paul writes letters to churches, he doesn't hesitate to identify himself as a prisoner for Christ. As he writes to Timothy, he says his life is being poured out like a drink offering before him. It's like Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, I'm holding my life in my hands like water. And all I do, no matter how hard I try to hold my hands together, it's seeping through the cracks between my fingers. I know I'm going to die soon as I rot here. Paul does not say, Timothy, I'm doing okay, hanging in there. Things have been better, but I'm all right. No, Paul is honest. I'm a prisoner. My life is seeping through my hands. The point is that there is no shame in being honest about our suffering. The church, the body of Christ, is a safe place to voice our doubts, our questions, and our fears during those dark, cold, and lonely nights of the soul. We can be honest as we suffer. Number two, we can be strong in our suffering. In the book of Zechariah, the prophet is in charge of helping the people rebuild the temple. He's encouraging the people as they rebuild the temple, trying to spur them on, trying to give them some motivation to continue this task that God has given them. 
But as these people are rebuilding the temple, they're facing immense pressure. They're facing an overwhelming task. They're facing vicious opposition. In other words, these people rebuilding the temple, they are very much suffering. And yet look what Zechariah tells them in chapter 8, verse 9. Let your hands be strong. Let your hands be strong. Endure the suffering that you are facing. Let your hands be strong. In the book of Hebrews, we see the author there who, in the face of growing persecution, offers an encouragement to these people to be strong. Look at Hebrews 10, verses 35 and 36. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You have need of endurance. Strengthen your hands. Endure your suffering. Consider the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Jesus challenges, encourages the church in Smyrna to be strong in the coming hardships, to be strong in the midst of their suffering. Now, it's kind of an oxymoron when you think about it. We just talked about being honest about our weakness in the midst of our suffering, and yet now we're told to be strong. How can we be honest about weakness and yet be strong at the same time? How does that work? Well, consider what Paul says in Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Sometimes we read that passage and we think that Paul's talking about being a superhero or being an amazing football player. But that's not what Paul is talking about at all. Paul is talking about God strengthening him in the face of suffering. Paul just talked about how I have learned to be content in all things. I have learned to be content at all times, no matter what kind of suffering the gospel brings about. So how do we be strong in suffering? Well, according to Paul, we find our strength in him. We find our strength in Christ. We find our strength in the gospel. We find our strength in God's grace. We can be honest at our weakness, and we can be strong in our suffering at the same time, because the strength is not our own. The strength comes from Christ himself. Number three, we can be hopeful in our suffering. Why? Why would we be hopeful in the midst of pain? Well, Paul says there we can be hopeful because Christ is risen. Look at what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Christ is not risen... All of our service, all of our faith, all of our preaching, all of our suffering for the gospel, you're right. They are senseless. 
They are pointless. They don't have any value if Christ has not been raised. And yet just a few verses later, Paul announces. But Christ has been raised. Christ is alive. Christ is not dead. Thus, your preaching and your faith and your ministry and even your suffering. Those things are not pointless. Those things are not senseless. It is not foolish to be hopeful because Christ is raised. But we can also be hopeful because future restoration is coming. Christ is raised. That is an historical fact. And yet even then, there's more to look forward to. Consider Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What you're suffering right now, Paul says, it can't even be put in the same sentence as the glory that you have to look forward to. The restoration that is coming. The reward that is waiting for you. Your suffering can't even hold a candle to that stuff. In J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, Sam, one of the characters, goes through immense suffering, immense pain, immense trauma throughout the entire book. But at the end, when all the pain and all the trauma has come to an end, Sam asks the question, is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? For the Christian, the answer is yes. Everything sad is going to come untrue. Thus, we can be hopeful in the midst of our suffering. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as he was being led to the gallows because of his Christian faith, said, this is the end, but for me, the beginning of life. Bonhoeffer knew that restoration was coming. That he was not done. That Christ had been risen. And he had faith even as he faced his own death. I pray that we too would be hopeful as we suffer. And finally, number four. Our Christian faith reminds us that we do not suffer alone. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about the body of Christ. And so often we read that passage and focus on how we all have different parts to play in the church and we all have a different role to fulfill in the church. And that's all well and good. That's certainly a major theme of that passage. But Paul also writes in that passage that if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member suffers, all suffer together. In the body of Christ, we bear each other's burdens. We do not suffer alone. But even better than that, better than having brothers and sisters in Christ to suffer with us and encourage us and support us and pray for us during those times, something even better than that is that we don't suffer alone because God, too, has suffered. Consider Jesus' cry from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sounds a lot like David. My God, my God, why have you turned your face from me? My God, why are you silent? My God, how long will you ignore me? Jesus' suffering was not just some symbolic 
suffering. It wasn't just so that we wouldn't have to suffer alone. Jesus' suffering was real. And in fact, Jesus' suffering was greater than any suffering that you or I will ever experience. Now, that might sound strange to say. It might sound like we're saying, okay, well, who are you to say that his suffering is greater than mine? After all, you don't know what kind of suffering I'm going through. You can't relate to the suffering that I'm dealing with, and that may be true. And yet Scripture claims, and the history of Christianity claims, that Jesus took on the greatest suffering imaginable. The suffering that Jesus experienced on the cross is greater than your suffering right now. It's always something to consider. In Isaiah 53, we read that Jesus would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our sins. Again, this wasn't symbolic. This wasn't just to make us feel less lonely. This suffering was for our sin, for our guilt, for our condemnation taking the penalty that we deserved. His suffering was greater than any suffering that we ever experienced, even though we are guilty and he was innocent. Now, this does go back to that original question. If God is good and God is powerful, why is there so much suffering? We haven't really offered a clear-cut answer. Well, this could be the closest that we'll get. Tim Keller writes that the cross shows us that it certainly isn't because of a lack of love. It certainly isn't because of a lack of love. We do suffer. It is a reality of the lives that we live. And yet we can look at the cross and know for sure that it's not because God doesn't love us. It's definitely not because of that. Because God sent his son to experience more suffering than we will ever face on behalf of sinners like us. The suffering that we deal with, the pain that we feel, it's not because God doesn't love us. The cross proves that. I asked you to open your Bibles to Romans 8 earlier, and we've hardly spent any time in Romans 8. But the reason I wanted you to open there is because I figured if your eyes start to wander, if you get a little bit bored during this sermon... There's no other passage I'd want you to look down and see than Romans 8. Because Romans 8 may offer the best hope and the best encouragement for God's people in the midst of pain. We read in Romans 8, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. No amount of suffering that we ever face can change that. No amount of pain that we deal with can change what happened on the cross and can take away the salvation that we find in Christ alone. We already mentioned Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor who remained faithful to Christ to the point of his own death 
at the hands of Nazis. And before Bonhoeffer was arrested, he wrote a lot about costly grace, this idea that following Jesus and suffering very much go hand in hand. He summed it up by saying that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. He bids him come and die. Well, eventually Bonhoeffer had to put his money where his mouth was as he suffered for following Jesus. And as Bonhoeffer sat in jail awaiting his death, he took advantage of the opportunity to minister to some of his fellow prisoners. And this is a prayer that he found great comfort in and that he would use to comfort those around him during their pain. Bonhoeffer would pray, O Lord God, great distress has come upon me. My cares threaten to crush me, and I do not know what to do. O God, be gracious to me and help me. Give me strength to bear what you send me, and do not let fear rule over me. O merciful God, forgive me all the sins that I have committed against you and against my fellow men. I trust in your grace and commit my life wholly into your hands. Do with me according to your will and as is best for me. Whether I live or die, I am with you, and you, my God, are with me. Lord, I wait for your salvation and for your kingdom. Amen. I pray that as you and I suffer, as we surely will, as you and I wrestle with doubts and wrestle with questions and wrestle with discouragement, as those things will come too, I pray that our suffering would still be characterized by honesty, by strength from Christ alone, from hopefulness and the reward that we have to look forward to when our suffering comes to an end. And that we would also know that as we suffer, we are never, ever alone. Because God suffered too. Let's pray. Father, again, this is just an incredibly difficult topic. Things that we want answers to, we want easy to digest and clear and sensible answers to questions like this. And yet so often we don't get those easy answers. We don't get those easy solutions. And yet, God, I pray that as we suffer, as we deal with the ups and downs, the successes and the failures, the hardships, God, that we would be strengthened by our faith in you, that you would hold us close to you, that you would provide a roof over our heads, that as we doubt and as we wonder and as we are frustrated, that you would still be protection over us. God, help us to trust in your grace. Help us to understand that we do not suffer alone and that you're not removed, you're not distant, you're not oblivious to the pain that we feel. If anything, you know suffering and you know pain better than any of us do. And we thank you for that. We love you, we praise you, we ask all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who suffered on our behalf. Amen.